six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Hello again, friends, and welcome to A Public Affair for Wednesday, November 23rd, 2022. Carousel Baird has the week off. I'm Stu Levitan. On March 1st, 1922, articles of incorporation were filed for a new organization called the Madison Community Union. Its purpose was to consolidate the fundraising activities of various groups and charities, then allocate the money raised according to budget priorities which it set. Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Marvin Rosenberry was the driving force behind its creation and its first president. Among other members of that first board of directors, Mayor Milo Kittleson, Capital Times founder William T. Evue, realtor Paul Stark, and attorney and parks advocate Michael Ulbrich. There were 14 agencies under the community union umbrella at the outset, mainline groups such as the Red Cross, Salvation Army, Three Hospitals, the Boy Scouts, Girls Club, the YM, and the YWCA. In late September, 800 volunteers went door-to-door and office-to-office, seeking $87,000 in donations and pledges. But when their three-day campaign ended, they were still a bit short. Even after extending the campaign two more days, the total raised was only about three-fourths of the goal, a little more than $67,000. Still, everyone declared this initial effort a success and set their sights on doing better and doing more in the future. Over the next hundred years, the community union went through various iterations. The War Chest, Red Feather, United Givers Fund, United Community Chest, before becoming United Way of Dane County in May 1971. For its centennial campaign in 2022, still going on, UWDC set a fundraising goal of more than $18 million to distribute among more than 100 partner agencies. So for the next 50 minutes or so, we're going to talk about where United Way is today, how it got here, and where it's going. And we have the two best guests we could possibly have for such a conversation, former United Way intern and since 2015, its president and CEO, Renee Moe, and the author of a centennial history of the organization, the entirely unrelated Doug Moe. <laughs> And you can join the conversation, of course. The number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. That's number 9, number 9. Well, congratulations, Renee, on 100 years, and congratulations, Doug, on what seems to be your 100th book, which I assure you (laughs) I'm going to make great use of uh, in my next book. Uh, Welcome to A Public Affair. Thank you. Renee, are you like the greatest intern success story ever? I mean, to go from intern to CEO is is pretty impressive. Oh, well, thanks. It's a, it's an amazing role in an amazing community. And uh, I don't know if it's the, the best intern to CEO success story, but it certainly is one that has uh, been a great honor for me to travel that journey and path along. And um, it just, you know, it's great. It's great. It's really cool to be at this vantage point for the community. And how long after starting that internship as a UW student did you think, hey, this might be a long term thing I got here? Well, you know, a funny story. I remember telling my mom, oh, this United Way thing, I don't know if this is going to last. So I'll do my two years and go get a different job. And I was so inspired by the work that was happening with reduction of the uh, opportunity gap in education and seeing the community come together and mobilize and really see that intersection between nonprofit and business and government that uh, I was really inspired. Um, truly, I didn't ever see myself as a CEO, but as I got, gained more experience and had deeper relationships, Um, and really saw the opportunity to listen well to the community and build more opportunities for people to mobilize their caring power. Um, It was, you know, a no-brainer to go for that, and I was happy the board agreed. It's hard to believe, but there may actually be people out there who have not heard of United Way. For Mm -hmm. those people, what is the 30-second elevator pitch? Yeah, thanks for asking that. Well, United Way really is a change catalyst in our community. We mobilize giving, advocacy, and volunteerism, and we try to tackle long-term generational change that no one organization or individual can accomplish. We do that by centering education, income that supports housing as well as health. And we do that work collaborating in partnership with nonprofits and businesses, all to create measurable, meaningful, long-term change. We wanna get people out of poverty and address the root causes of that um, and really uh, build a community that's stronger for everybody. Now, is that more than just 
fundraising and distributing the money operationally how do you get into addressing those problems those yeah. problems so operationally we really start with lived experience so individuals who utilize united way services through a whole network of partner nonprofits uh, we want to listen to them and say hey how's life going for you here in our community and then we look at the data what's going on with graduation rates incarceration rates what's going on with poverty and wealth how is the employment um, landscape changing, what does housing look like? We all know that's a big challenge. And so by taking the lived experience of community voice and really mapping that with community data, we can then co-create solutions together. And we call these mobilization plans. So we get volunteers from sectors, experts who know the issues and experts who are living their lives. And we figure out um, what maybe isn't happening at a certain nonprofit or a partnership of nonprofits, what isn't happening with government, and how do we really bridge those things that fall between the gaps and co-create solutions. So, for example, when we saw that um, kids weren't being as successful as we needed them to be in literacy, we were able to ask parents what's going on and ask teachers what's going on. And together, we were able to bring volunteers into the schools through partnerships with nonprofits and donors to bring tutors to coincide with teacher curriculum and what students needed to build those relationships with the community. We were able to really uh, help more kids increase their literacy skills. Uh, or, for example, when we saw that a lot of the homelessness support was going into shelter, but also saw some burgeoning new research that showed that we get people into housing first and work on other issues, we can get them out of homelessness and into self-sufficiency. So that was the ability of using private dollars through United Way and partnering with nonprofits and, again, with families to articulate their own goals and help them on paths to success and really help um, eliminate homelessness for families, especially families with young children, 50 percent through um, these massive coalitions that were able to um, uh, define by community, resource by community dollars, and then with that accountability, the data that we use to make sure that we're actually making the difference we intend to, to make. Doug, you've lived here all your life and were a working journalist through a good chunk of the period you cover in the book. What did you know about United Way of Dane County before you started the research? Well, <clears throat> You know, I knew that it, I think I knew that it was a uh, highly regarded nationally, because I think in my newspaper columns over the years, um, you know, I, I would interview uh, Leslie Ann Howard, who, you know, preceded Renee in her role. And, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is um, not to blow newspapers horns too hard, but uh, um, the, the State Journal back in the 90s was a real catalyst uh, for um, it was in an era of civic journalism, and their editor at the time really embraced um, what was called City of Hope, Schools of Hope followed that. Um, so it was, I think, uh, and in fact, Stu, even dating to 100 years ago, um, the newspapers um, were, were partnering, in a sense, with um, nonprofits and with United Way in particular, I think, um, advancing the philanthropic goal. So I was pretty aware of it. I didn't know the people involved so well. You know, it was fun for me going back and finding all these Madison names that you know from all your writing um, <clears throat> were prominent in other ways. And it was kind of fun to, to find that they were prominent in the early edition or iterations of the United Way as well. Yeah, a lot of Rotarians in that list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's true. As, as are Renee and I. That's right. Uh, Doug, what what surprised you in the research? Well, you know, I would say that, uh, except I just mentioned it, you know, I guess that, that I would, that these all these familiar names kept popping up. You know, um, Rosenberry, I did not know the first, or I did not know of. And he ended up, it was interesting because of his big footprint here in Madison, but he wasn't not local, really. He came to Madison in, the, in his 40s. He got appointed to the Supreme Court. Uh, he was city attorney in Wausau. And he lands here, and I think in 1916, and uh, he eventually won two more terms. He was appointed to that spot. Um, and he became a big you know, force in the city. But you had other people like Emil Frauchi, you mentioned Paul Stark, I think. Um, you know, th these names continued to reverberate for, for decades and decades. Um, so, so that was fun for me. I'm trying to think other surprises. Um, one thing was during the war years, um, finding out 
uh, that Madison led the led the country in its in its donations uh, uh, during the war chest years. Um, I found some controversies that I wasn't aware of um, that we deal with in the book. The, the, um, the, 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 so yeah, it was it was a learning process. The the fact that one of Renee's predecessors kind of tried to muscle the uh, Red Cross into into disavowing the Nationals gun control uh, policy because the executive director of the United Way at the time was was big in the NRA. That, that certainly <laughs> was an interesting... I learned that from Doug's book, too. <laughs> yeah, what, what surprises did, did you uh, get out of reading Doug's book? Or what? how much did this enrich your understanding of the organization and its history? Oh, it enriched my understanding so much. You know, the the genesis of the United Way story is as the country was moving westward, people were looking for health and wealth. And, uh, you know, somewhere around Denver, people got together and said, you know, we'd be more effective if we could pool our resources and help others. And the fact that we were the 100th um, organization like that, because of the leaders that you mentioned, Stu, coming out of a committee at the Chamber of Commerce, put that together, was really eye-opening. And I think what really surprised me and struck me and really touched my heart was um, um, thinking through, you know, the speech that Mr. Frouchy gave talking about um, United Way is an integrating and constructive force for good in our community. And I thought how profound that, you know, after about 40 or 50 years of existence, he really saw that that um, operational part of raising money and getting it out to great nonprofits was really enhanced by the larger strategic architecture of the community and sort of having a coalesced vision of, you know, who we are and what we can be and really mobilizing more community members to take part in that. And that was really quite powerful. And I can see um, those seeds planted, you know, many decades ago in our work today. And there was something quite striking to see all of those amazing community members, um, those whose names we know and those whose we, we don't, um, really you know, coming together to make this community as strong as it can possibly be for our neighbors. That was really, really powerful. The Frouchy you refer to, Renee, was Lowell Frouchy. Lowell, that's right. But this family has provided three generations of leadership, uh, not just to United Way, and, mm-hmm. uh, but through the city. So we've got Emil, the, the patriarch, who's part of Community right. Union, then Lowell and uh, Walter, the brothers, mm-hmm. are important and then even Walter's son, Jerry. So we got, you know, three generations being involved. Talk a bit more about that speech right. that Lowell Frouchy gave in 1946, right. which has essentially become the credo of community chests. Absolutely. Yeah. And, jo- and Jerry's brother, John, also very involved. They're web crafters um, and Grant, Jerry's son, a good friend um, who's very involved in our community and in arts and environment in particular. Yeah. So that credo really was... Um, you know, casting a new vision of a sort of this vantage point of seeing all different points of the community and recognizing that spirit of what we can accomplish together. You know, that one plus one equals three um, opportunity in collaboration and partnership and um, doing, you know, doing bigger things than what we can do individually. And so um, the the speech really was, um, it was, it was given at our annual meeting um, uh, in that year. And it was adopted by a number of other um, United Way predecessors across the country and really set the stage for, um, you know, what United Way of Dane County really uh, created first, which was collective impact. Uh, And that was now more of an academic term for the work we do of setting a community-wide vision, mobilizing multiple um, stakeholders across different sectors, and again, driving accountability for results through community change and mobilization. And so I think that the seeds from that speech really did set the intention and set the expectation that um, United Way should serve our community and lead in those ways that, um, you know, fill in the white spaces on the community org chart. Um, there are a lot of places where a lot of people know something should change and uh, maybe, you know, smaller groups still who know what that change should be and fewer even still who know how to actually get it done. And that was really, um, I think, you know, manifested through that speech that he gave so many years ago. You know, I got to meet Lowell. Did I ever tell oh, you that? Oh, no. Tell, yeah. us about that. tell us about that. 
so this actually was when I was an intern um, and I was uh, working on the building recognition project. We had a local artist, Michelle Hatchell, put together clay tiles and we went to all the donors and got their handprints. And uh, Lowell's hand was not able to be pressed into the clay. He was quite frail. And so I was able to trace his hand. And then we had children from uh, local United Way programs and nonprofit partners who painted all the tiles. And that's actually in our lobby at the building at 2059 Atwood Avenue. And I remember uh, when I shared with him the tile, he said, oh, I've been immortalized and he passed away not too long after. So I was really honored that I got to meet him and thank him for his leadership and his family's leadership. And one of the things I especially liked about Doug's book is some of the personal insights into people who I know through newspaper clippings. But, you know, mm-hmm. to, to hear the stories about Lowell, maybe could have become, you know, a, a professor. But no, he goes into business and, you know, runs the runs the family firm because uh, he because his sons were mainly academic and public service, whereas Walter's sons uh, did go exclusively into business. But to see those little capsule biographies of the people who I know through boldface newspaper <clears throat> items was was very useful, Doug. Stuart, I think, didn't I steal from, from one of your books, actually, or maybe an Isthmus article? Um, wasn't Lowell the Frouchy who, who met Orson Welles? Yes, yes, met- yes. Mm-hmm, that's at, right. at Camp Indianola, yeah. Well, yeah, see, this is just, this, you know, this is sort of a, a mutual admiration society. You know, we just, steal, <laughs> we just steal from each other's. We're talking with Renee Moe, the president and CEO of United Way of Dane County, though, frankly, I've never understood the difference between those two jobs. And Doug Moe, the author of a new biography uh, celebrating a century of innovation, collaboration, and positive change. It is a public affair, and you are part of the public. You can give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, and we'll put you on the air if you have any questions or comments for Renee or Doug, not related. Uh, <laughs> Renee... Y- so the history of United Way of Dane County is 100 years. You've been there almost a quarter of that That's time, right. seven years as president and CEO. How mm-hmm. has it changed in the time you've been there? You know, when I started at United Way um, and we had our one-page goals and objection, objectives sheet, it was all about the campaign revenue. And it was really around how much money can we raise? How much money do we distribute? And, you know, that evolution that uh, Leslie and Howard threw that partnership with the State Journal, Channel 3 and Schools of Hope to really show how do we um, articulate a goal and a vision, understand the data and mobilize community to get something done, um, really moved impact to the top of that one pager. And the change we make and how we measure change in the human condition versus, um, you know, still important, right? The dollars that are able to raise to mobilize that change was really um, significant. And what happened with that agenda for change, again, that that start of collective impact was co-creation of partnerships. So early childhood nonprofits didn't necessarily talk to one another and housing uh, case managers working with families didn't necessarily talk to one another. Employment agencies didn't necessarily get in the same room to have conversations. And so through these initiatives to say, you know, we know that each agency can focus on a few families at a time, but overall we want to make sure that we're seeing, you know, macro community changes for all of our families. We were able to build relationships and new rhythms together. So as you moved that forward and advanced that work and started seeing some successes in those changes. Um, We've now really understood that it's a multi-generational approach that makes the most effective change. So when you're able to help a family with housing or a student with literacy or a family with childcare, you don't necessarily uh, get a family moved from crisis to stability unless you're working with caregivers and children at the same time. So that multi-generational approach, really um, aggregating um, different services in a way that we hope there's no wrong door for families. You know, that's what we're aspiring to. That's what we're building to is really the next step of United Way. So those are a lot of the biggest changes. Um, technology has changed a lot, right? United Way used to be the place you gave for the community campaign. Now you can give on your phone. You can give at the checkout line at the grocery store. Um, you can tax some extra dollars on to your um, online account and when you're checking out. And so um, how we mobilize is also very different. We've got to meet people where they are. Um, and certainly post-pandemic, people are feeling quite isolated. They don't necessarily have that sense of community. 
Um, I think that the division going on in the world and, you know, all the scary things that are happening, um, people want to feel connected to their community. They want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And so a lot of the work now is going back to the basics, helping people connect, get proximates. You can build relationships that build trust. You can get more done. Um, And so, you know, we're nimble. We evolve with the community and we try to anticipate and support um, what the community needs. So that's where we've been and, and that's some of where we're going. You mentioned the agenda for change and chapter eight of Doug's book is focuses on the agenda for change, which you unveiled in February 2024, which talks about focusing on seven specific areas of concentration, minority student achievement, early childhood development, access to health care, homelessness, independence for elderly and people with disabilities, domestic violence, and strength of local nonprofit agencies. Does that mean, did that, and does that mean that groups, agencies that don't focus on those seven core values were not going to be part of future campaigns? Or, or is that, you're shaking your head. People can't see on, on, on the radio, but That's you're shaking right. your head. Yes. No, it's a great question. It's a great question. So um, any 501c3 can be supported through United Way through donor designation. So donors can say, I want to give to this organization, and it doesn't have to fit into those um, categories. So those have now been um, you know, streamlined into education, income, health, and that multi-generational approach, and will be um, you know, cascaded forward into a really a, a, a plan for family well-being and community health going forward. So the unrestricted dollars people give to United Way, you know, what we refer to as those greatest needs dollars, when somebody gives that unrestricted dollar to United Way, our army of volunteers are able to uh, direct those dollars toward these community plans that I mentioned previously. Other donors who want to give to other agencies, not necessarily inside of those goals, um, can still give to those nonprofits. Uh, It's just the unrestricted dollars that really advance that larger community um, goal. You know, those things that sometimes take a longer time to get done um, and that need a little bit more collaboration because, um, you know, a lot of times the, the dollars that go to help in emergencies and crisis aren't necessarily the same dollars that are able to address the root causes. So those unrestricted dollars going into those community level plans are really looking at root causes, systems changes, um, you know, transforming um, workforce housing availability, for example, or really doing that on the ground parent coaching work and home visitation to um, help families become their child's first teacher um, and or doing that mental health work that really helps folks heal through trauma and um, go into the ability to, um, you know, get more education, get a higher paying wage job, etc. So um, there, there are kind of two categories there. And it doesn't mean that folks are excluded because they can designate, but it does mean that the focused area of the goals that we're trying to advance, um, we are using the unrestricted dollars and targeting them there. Doug, you probably know more about the history of United Way than anybody else having gone through their corporate records. And and by the way, isn't it great to live in a city where the Wisconsin Historical Society archives are and you can just they go have down the earliest minutes, yeah. And and, and read, the, minutes. read the corporate records and, and track this. What's your sense of how the organization in its various iterations has changed and grown over the years? Uh, let me, I was, I was going to say, uh, can, let me talk about a consistency first. Okay. okay? okay. And I can talk about how it changed, but what I, what I came to admire so much in my research, uh, cause there were some controversies. Um, one from the early 1960s involved a, a tiny infant boy named Jimmy Brockway. Um, his, his uh, dad was in the Air Force here and the family was troubled and he was the youngest of four, of four kids, um, was brought into the hot Madison General Hospital in January of 1961, nine months old, and he weighed, I believe it was nine pounds. It was, he, he was, you know, very undernourished and, and he died. And the, uh, the community, you know, the, the papers were on the story. Um, what happened? How did social services fail this little boy? And it, um, United Way, or it wasn't at United Way then, but uh, really, to my mind, answered that call by owning it, by finding out that the uh, agencies, the, the visiting nurse service and Red Cross, each thought the other was more involved than they were with his family. They appointed, again, to mention Lowell Frouchy. they appointed Lowell head of a citizens committee to f- find out what happened. 
this was a year-long exercise and um, their findings, the committee's findings were, were, they had seven recommendations, a lot of them having to do with interagency cooperation. They published a pamphlet, like 30 pages long, that they took to the National Association meeting of, of United Way type organizations and um, really stood up and, and improved things um, when it would have been pretty easy given the news cycle to just kind of say, oh, that's too bad and, and, and let it go. Um, fast forward just quickly, uh, uh, several decades, the uh, National United Way organization had a scandal in the early 90s. Um, their executive director was found to have this lavish lifestyle. Um, you know, by then, Leslie Ann Howard had just, and, and, and you know, it got tremendous poor publicity. But, but in Madison, you know, Leslie had just started in her role and uh, she was, again, f face forward on it. Um, very open, talked to people. Um, United Way Dane County withheld their dues from the national organization until they could be sure that the ship was righted. And it was. Um, three years later, the New York Times did a survey and found that between 92 and 95, I believe it was, um, in the years after that, that scandal broke, Many United Ways had seen their funding decrease. United Ways of Dane County's increased 25%. Um, so again, um, that, that's not really, I didn't answer your question, Stu, but I think those are important stories to show that there was this kind of consistency really amid all the changes um, in the way they've, got, they've gone about their business. And uh, you know, sometimes the hard thing to do is the right thing to do. And uh, I think they've done that more often than not. And to go back to that Brockway's tragedy, it's hard to say there was a happy ending, but but all the work that United Way did in coming up ways to coordinate delivery of service had a positive impact because shortly thereafter, there was another boy, another infant that had yes. a medical condition. Yeah. And, and because people knew how to handle a situation where people weren't talking together, they started to talk together and that kid's life was saved. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. You mentioned uh, controversies. There was another one early, Renee, in your time with the organization before you were uh, in your current position involving the Boy Scouts. Now, the Boy Scouts were one of the charter members of the original community union in, you know, 100 years ago. And the Four Lakes Council of Boy Scouts had gay members and gay leaders, but the National Boy Scouts of America had a prohibition on that. And come 2001, 2002, there's pressure for United Way to expel them as a partner agency. You're giving them $130,000, $130,000 or so a year. Were you entire? How, how did, you, as a relatively junior member of, of the team at that time, how did you perceive that controversy playing out? And do you think it had the right resolution? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So at the time, I was leading the resource development area, running the campaign. So I certainly saw very intimately the impact it had and um, the larger discourse that was going on in the community. So uh, I think that, um, you know, from my vantage point, I saw amazing volunteers, um, Dave Stark, you know, one of the grandkids that you mentioned of Paul earlier, um, was one of the committee members at the time. And he and a number of other United Way volunteers met with four like Council and uh, many other LGBTQ advocates in the community. We're really trying to find common ground. Um, to Doug's point, you know, we don't shy away from controversy. We really are trying to figure out the right things, even when they are the hard things. And so um, we had really uh, come very close. And then the Boy Scout Council felt um, it would be in the best interest for the community for them to voluntarily withdraw from United Way funding rather than uh, having that decision made from the, the community. And so, um, you know, I felt that was a very noble decision in a lot of ways to really, uh, you know, remove that sort of lightning rod because it had become such a hard issue in the community. Um, and that said, a few years later, um, the Boy Scouts, of course, allowed um, gay members and then allowed um, gay leaders a few years after that. And so um, they were then in compliance with the inclusion policy and, um, the, you know, the really the mission of uh, being a catalyst for inclusion and systemic change. So I think, you know, 
in hindsight, I think, yes, it was handled in the way that was very healthy for the community. And it forced a lot of important conversations about who we are as a community and who what we stand for in terms of inclusion. And, um, you know, especially when it comes to investment in our children and certainly the kids who are involved with Scouts. But just to be clear, the local yeah. group did allow gay members and gay leaders and had gay members and gay right. leaders. That's right. So, so In fact, the elders, um, you know, Joe Elder did an assessment of the local Boy Scouts policies and found that they were very inclusive locally. And that said, because the national policy did not allow for that, uh, that was why the Boy Scouts decided locally that they should voluntarily withdraw from United Way because it becomes such a, a hot issue in the community and um, really took that upon themselves to um, to say, you know what, we're, we're not going to call that question. We're going to um, voluntarily withdraw. I remember the day when Chuck Dobbins and, and uh, the board members from the Boy Scouts came to the United Way office. Um, and it was, um, you know, it was in some ways actually um, disappointing because there'd been so much work on common ground and really, you know, sharing, sharing what was going on and sharing that the local Boy Scouts did have inclusion policies, but it was that national um, policy that created the most tension. And again, that policy is no longer in existence. And now you likely know that BSA is the name of the umbrella of um, what was formerly Boy Scouts of America. And apparently the Four Lakes Council has become the Glacier's Edge Council. That's right. They're now the Glacier's <laughs> Edge. That's right. That's happened a few years ago. Stu, yeah. uh, Stu, I've got to jump in with one. You asked me about change. Yeah. And I think this is an interesting one, How what changes I saw. Let's go to 1973. And... Um, uh, the, the lack of women uh, involved with um, <clears throat> United Ways became an issue. In 1973, um, 28 people on the United Way of Dane County Board, four of those are women. Mm -hmm. So they really did, again, um, it was when Pat Lucy was governor and he had, I think, had a, a, a committee. To, you know, to, Commission to, on the uh, Status of Women. Thank you. That's right, yes. that's right. Um, and, you know, within a few years, I believe it was a few years, but maybe five or six years, uh, United Way Dane County had its first female uh, uh, president. Mm -hmm. um, Jean Glover was her name. That's right. So, you know, that that's a change. And and uh, as, as we know now, we've had women as, as leading the whole organization for the last many decades, which is great. Four of the six members of the leadership team are women, and it looks like about a majority of the board of directors uh, are women. That's right. You know, Ralph Dickerson became, I never was able to, to absolutely pin this down, but when he became executive director in, in 1977, I think it was, um, I'm pretty sure he was the first African-American uh, executive director of a United Way. Um, you know, a corollary though to that is, is uh, back in the 60s, um, uh, Nelson United Cummings did not, did not bring in Urban League That's uh, right. Mm -hmm. right at first. Because we um, did not have discrimination here in Madison. Yeah, well, Kathy Ferris, a banker, yeah. you know, good, good citizen. But yeah, he said, unlike other communities, Madison doesn't have this discrimination problem. Well, of course, when, when the Madison chapter of United Way, I'm sorry, of Urban League mm -hmm. was formed a couple years later, the first guy they hired as president took him three months to move or more to Madison because he no one would sell him a house. It was Nel Nelson Cummings. Nelson Cummings. Oh, thank you. Uh, also uh, a, a, another Rotarian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Doug, I want, I want to go back to uh, something you alluded to a moment ago because it's really one of the um, f transformational steps in, in United Way's history, and that's uh, the City of Hope and the Schools of Hope, and the fact that it was, you and I are both old newspaper men, and the fact that one newspaper editor actually changed lives for the better through his practice of civic journalism. Talk, talk a bit about Frank Denton and what he accomplished and set in motion the schools in, in the City of Hope and the Schools of Hope, and then Renee can, can take it forward. Sure. Um, yeah, I interviewed Frank. Uh, for the book, I knew him uh, a little bit from his his time here. I wasn't with the newspapers when he was here, but um, you know, it, he he was a big proponent of what became called civic journalism, 
And I have to say it was controversial. There were some of us old news hounds who initially kind of scoffed at it, you know, and said, well, our job is to, to report. Our, our, we're not supposed to be out there um, leading the way or making news, if you will, that sort of thing. Benton was a big believer in it. Um, and there was first, as you alluded to, Stu, the City, City of Hope project. Um, and then uh, out of that came a year or two later, Schools of Hope. And, and United Way was really involved with that. Um, Denton called Leslie Ann Howard and, and said, will you come on board with this? And, and as Renee had, had talked when we first signed on about United Way being a convener, I think that was a huge deal for, for uh, Leslie Ann to put United Way's, all the goodwill they had kind of on the line and asking people to come and sit around the, new, the table out at the newspaper with Frank Dentman, there's gonna be a reporter in the room and we're all gonna sign on to this project and see if we can't, as, as time went on, they, they narrowed it down to, 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 to help the achievement gap um, uh, for, for uh, you know, and uh, I think it was third grade, it was Renee can maybe help me with that, but that was the first target. Can't we, you know, African-American kids, can we get their reading levels up to where they should be in third grade? And and the State Journal ran, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of stories about this. Uh, one quick anecdote, they, uh, they ended up thinking that tutors would be a, a really good asset for this project. And they, they, they wanted 400 tutors. State Journal runs a Sunday front page about it. The next, the next day, Monday, the United Way phone thing has, over, has been overwhelmed by, uh, by Madison citizens volunteering to get involved with this project and help these kids learn how to read. Um, it really was pretty neat. And you're right, I think, Stu, in crediting Frank. When Frank left Madison, he went down south. And, and at one point in 2008, he ended up in Jacksonville. And he was introduced, because other, other cities picked up on this, other United Ways picked up on this. Um, and Frank was introduced to the, the head of the Northeast Florida United Way. And, right as they were introduced, she gave him a big hug. And he said, what was that about? And she said, schools of hope. So yeah, it's not often the newspaper guy gets to be a hero, but. That's pretty great. Leslie Howard sent Frank a copy of Doug's book and uh, he wrote back and he said, that was the proudest accomplishment of my career. That's pretty powerful, pretty powerful. So, you know, at the time, 29% um, of our African-American students weren't reading at proficiency. And um, through the tutoring, one-on-one, one-on-two -on -one, one -on in concert with the teacher curriculum, uh, volunteers were trained. You know, we had scheduled, we had volunteer managers in the schools. Um, we were able to reduce that number down to 5%. Uh, and it was done much more quickly than we thought. And it was really around, um, you know, again, mobilizing the community. That that voicemail that was full uh, led us to, you know, have more calls all week long. So there were 800 volunteers recruited in that initial round of Schools of Hope that all called to the community to help with this issue. Really powerful. And um, certainly we know that racial achievement gaps and opportunity gaps, or some people refer to them as opportunity debt, talking about racism and systemic issues and, um, you know, what it takes to help kids start ready. Um, a lot of kids start, you know, two, three years behind when they get to kindergarten. Um, so when you look at all of that, to actually have an intervention that gets kids from reading from from uh, minimal to basic. That was the goal, was minimal to basic. And now, of course, we're continuing to work on to get kids to and hopefully advanced so we can increase that trajectory toward graduation. And have you been able to track participants through time and see some sort of longitudinal study to see how that affected their lives through the rest of their educational and then future lives? Our partners at the School of Education, who were very integral in designing those strategies that we deployed early on, um, have done some longitudinal work, Annalie Good in particular, from School of Education now. Um, those early, early years, we weren't tracking like that. We weren't doing the rigorous academic methodology. Um, we are doing more of that assessment uh, now, and we're seeing that kids who receive the intervention do do significantly statistically better. Um, and, you know, it, it really has to do a lot with not only the literacy practice in concert with the teacher, which is really important, um, but more so the uh, human connection with the volunteer and adult who cares directly about the kids who builds that relationship. And the show. Um, we see over and over again, 
um, you know, a lot of kids maybe who don't necessarily have consistent attendance, they show up on their Schools of Hope Tutor Day. Um, that was immensely disrupted during the pandemic, too. So I just want to, you know, be super transparent and honest about that. And we're really trying to get uh, all of that back on track again now that volunteers are allowed back in our schools. I want to get to the pandemic in a moment, but just to finish up on Schools of Hope, did that experience, the, the Schools of Hope and the City of Hope, have a lasting change on how United Way Dane County saw its mission and delivered its mission? Yes, hands down. Um, bar none, that was the way we learned about what is collective impact. We were doing collective impact before there was a name for it. And um, in that early day, I remember at Oberg Gardens where we had teachers and parents and white flip charts all over the place with, with colorful markers all over the room. Um, you know, that, that ability to listen to the community, partner with the university, with the data, partner with the media to be able to get an all call out, partner with businesses to fund the volunteer managers, partner with grant writers to, with AmeriCorps, uh, partner with teachers and school district leaders. Um, you know, it was very brave for the superintendent and those uh, other school district staff to be in the room with those reporters and to say, like, let's lay bare this data that shows that, you know, our kids aren't learning the way that we all want them to. Um, and it was that ability to, um, you know, show that we all have a piece of this responsibility, come together and make change, and then to show measurably over time that we actually could with consistent fidelity and how we executed the the strategies, um, it was really powerful. And we've certainly taken that forward into our early childhood work, into our income work, into our homelessness reduction work, into our health work. Um, so yeah, it's it's been great. And much like Lowell Frouchy had his credo for United Ways being an integrating and constructive force in our community and really tackling uh, that more nationwide, this collective impact model has also really inspired other United Ways across the country and frankly, other organizations as well to um, really focus on those big issues that um, we need partnership to be able to you know, move the needle on. And, and I was, I was good, just going to ask quickly, well, I was going to mention that, that it, it impacted way beyond Madison mm -hmm. and United Way National ended up putting up centers of excellence, right? And That's right. And United Way of Dane County was one and had people, one. other organizations come in and kind of learn how to do it. That's uh, right. Yeah, it's basically training for other practitioners in terms of, you know, how to run what we call a delegation. So a delegation tends to be, it's a big committee, um, but it's made up of those experts from a cross-sector perspective. And um, we really try to, you know, the first few months or so, look at the data, let's define the problem, right? How we define the problem and, and fall in love with the problem. And then the, the second uh Part of the, the initiative and the delegation is to really say, okay, what's happening? How do we asset map what's going well in the community, what's not going well? And then the third part of the delegation is all around, okay, so what are we going to do about it? So what are the strategies that need to get put into place to achieve a response to the problem? And then, of course, we go to the community and we try to resource that through giving and advocacy and volunteerism. And the resources, the dollars in particular that we're able to raise, oftentimes can help incubate and co-create new ways of doing things. Um, because our dollars are a bit more flexible. We can try some new things, we can innovate, we can make the mistakes and learn. And then oftentimes that will lead to public dollar shifts, which oftentimes are far more than what we can raise, um, but can really transform how we deliver services and how we can actually make change that sticks. I wanna ask another operational question about the nuts and bolts of raising the money. I'm struck mm -hmm. by some of the campaign campaigns that Doug talks about in the book were people actually going out and knocking on doors and, and ringing doorbells in the 50s and 60s. And in 1965, 2,200 people going out and ringing doorbells. Do you still do that? Do you still knock on doors? Or is it now mainly through the, the public and university payroll deduction yeah. and corporate gifts? Well, now we buzz your phones, right? We're even closer to you than your yeah. doorbell, I think. <laughs> no, truly, it's um, it's still a massive volunteer campaign. So this year, Jeff Keebler of MG&E is uh, the chair of the campaign. His vice chair is Pete Vogel of um, Vogel Construction. And they have a committee of 40 campaign cabinet volunteers. They represent a wide cross-section of community industry. So we have a high tech division, we have an insurance and finance division, we have a manufacturing division, retail service, hospitality. So all across professional services, right, investment, attorneys, etc., um, healthcare. Um, so all the, the breadth of our industries across Dane County, we've got representative volunteers and they then recruit teams 
from their industry or people who have relationships and they are the ones knocking on business doors. So in the fall, we tend to open up the wider community campaign for um, the payroll deductions that you mentioned and also direct response, um, which is online or through social or through events. And then in the spring, we talk to all the CEOs of local businesses and we say, hey, what's going on with your company? What change do you wanna make? How do we partner together? And between corporate gifts and employee gifts that also include leadership giving, those who are giving, um, you know, larger average gifts and just mobilizing more participation. That's how we raise the dollars to be able to fund the impact work. You, you, you said that you're represented by all the industries. Madison mm -hmm. has been shifting its economic basis. And, and once upon a time, Oscar Meyer was was a big deal, and Oscar G. Meyer Jr. was was uh, the first the chair of the first United Givers Fund. Goff Beach, who was a, a later president, was was uh, uh, chair of the, the the board. Were there any current Oscar Meyer relationships that got severed when the company closed? Well, we're very fortunate that a lot of the individual givers continue to give independently of the company when the company moved out of town. So Hal Meyer, for example, is still very deeply involved, um, one of the Meyer family, of course, and many others as well. Um, we uh, It was a big deal when that happened. In fact, I was uh, announced as uh, the new uh, leader in the summer of 2015, and that fall was when it was announced Oscar Meyer was moving out of the community. And so um, it was a gigantic um, you know, impact, not only because of the jobs people would lose, but certainly because of all the work they did in volunteering and giving in the community. So we were able to work with them to have kind of a step down over a number of years so that that wasn't just a complete uh, erasure of that corporate support. And we were able to offer support for the employees to help with um, retraining and, um, you know, job search for those who didn't want to continue on with the company and move out of the community. Um, but it was a big deal for us and a big hit uh, I will tell you, around the same time, Kevin Conroy in Exact Sciences was um, stepping into prominence in the community. And Kevin actually said to me early on, he said, wouldn't it be great if Exact Sciences could replace those Oscar Mayer dollars someday? And, uh, you know, and they did. They achieved over a million dollars in their campaign last year. So um, pretty powerful in terms of that that citizenship and that leadership. Um, but it's, you know, to this day, you know, we see that that big empty lot over on uh uh, Sherman Avenue and near Northport. Um, and I know there's a lot of, of conversation going on about what's happening there with the city. Um, but that was a big loss culturally for our community, as well as those resources that supported so many nonprofits through giving and volunteerism. And what about that nasty demographic shift where boomers like me are retiring <laughs> and therefore not donating through payroll deduction? Are, are the millennials and Gen Xers aware of United Way and supportive? Well, I yeah, I don't know how nasty it is. Well, I was first of all, let me say a lot of the retirees and boomers are still continuing to give through direct response. We have a lot of retirees. We even have a group that was built out of the Oscar Meyer retirees called Ready Retired Employees or Dedicated Individuals, and they volunteer robustly throughout the campaign. So we still keep people involved because they want to help. And in fact, they might have more time to be able to help and give and endow their gifts. Many endow the gifts they've given all throughout their payroll deduction. Um, but as for the younger individuals, you know, we are really finding that the, um, the mission of United Way resonates really well with millennial and Gen Z because they are looking at social change and systems change um, in addition to supporting the crisis and supporting the help, right? They're really seeing um, what is it around um, our institutions that have to be disrupted for the new way forward and how do we make sure that there is more equity and equality for more of our neighbors. And so um, those are aligning very well. A lot of them don't necessarily have as much wealth for their early career or mid-career. So many of them are giving through payroll deduction um, at smaller amounts or volunteering. <laughs> and uh, we do have a lot of work to do in terms of inspiring more of that civic leadership because I also feel like many of them are feeling pretty jaded about institutions and trust in government and maybe even for nonprofits and other um, sectors like healthcare or schools or other things like that. Law enforcement, you know, great example. 
So what we've been doing is uh, we have a really beautiful youth committee called By Youth for Youth. These are high school students across Dane County High Schools. They get together every year and they design their own priorities. Uh, we give them some dollars, UW Extension. We have city county partnerships and other um, MGME, for example, who give some dollars and they get to actually distribute real dollars to projects for youth designed by youth. That's been a wonderful, wonderful way to get young folks involved. We also have a group called Link that is our young professionals group. And, um, you know, they joke, they volunteer and have a beer and they do a lot of work in terms of social networking. And um, a lot of companies are looking for more engagement and employees are asking for more chances to give back, right? Younger employees are also demanding from companies that they are doing more civically and to help in the communities. And so um, we're really um, a partner in helping businesses engage their younger employees and help them find meaningful, measurable ways to give back. And so, um, you know, it's not as robust. I think that, you know, your generation, Stu, if I may, was told it's, your, it's the right thing to do. It's your civic rent. You know, you give to United Way, you vote, you do all those things, you, know, you shovel your neighbor's sidewalk. And that is one of those things that you just do because that's the right thing to do. And uh, philanthropy really needs to be learned and modeled and people need to feel like they know what's happening with their money. And oftentimes they want to see and feel and touch the change. And so um, again, as always, we need to be innovative and show that impact and make sure people see how they're able to influence that change forward. So um, we're doing all those things to try to get the whole community involved. Yeah. And and how, has co how did COVID affect the operations and the vision and how how much are you back to pre-COVID levels mm -hmm. in everything? Yeah. So, I mean, the pandemic was a portal, right? And those things that had to get transformed, I think, just accelerated. So um, we were fully remote. I was in my basement raising $2.3 million because we knew it would take a while for governmental support to step up. Um, and so we were able to get out to the agencies right away so they could respond to families right away. Um, we know when people lose their incomes, you know, and obviously with their not healthy and kids aren't in school, um, there's a lot of stress that happens with housing and food. And so um, we were able to really shift into that emergency mode coordinating safe volunteerism and in-kind contributions. And uh, now we are able to really, you know, get back focused on that root cause systems change in addition to helping in the, the you know, challenges that are still happening, right? A lot of people sick. We've got, you know, new um, RSV going around right now. We, people are still struggling with inflation and higher costs. Food costs are super high you know, gas prices for, for work, um, two-on-one calls. You know, we hear from family members and community members every day what's going on. So, um, you know, a lot has changed. Um, and the core work of, um, you know, helping more community members understand the issues um, and how to help um, is, is still the core of what we're doing. And, and uh, we'll continue to do that. Doug, we've just got about a minute left. As you look at the history as I say, you know more about than anybody. What do you think those founders, Marv Rosenberry and Paul Stark and Michael Olbrick and William T. Evie, would think of the state of United Way of Dane County today? Well, um, I'm a little biased, but I think they'd be thrilled. Um, you know, uh, and not only because there's still Starks involved, for one thing, right? Um, but yeah, just to see the evolution and uh, and to see that the move from being some an agency that uh, you know raises money to being one that, that actually you know is deeply concerned about making an impact, it'd be hard to argue that they wouldn't be extremely happy about it. Um, I'm just waiting for Renee to, to sell the movie rights to the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can report on that at a later date. I'm afraid that is all the time we have with United Way of Dane County President and CEO Renee Moe and author Doug Moe. For more information, unitedwaydanecounty.org and dougmoe.org, where you can download a PDF of the book for free. Alan Ruff will be your host tomorrow. Jade Isiri Ramos is the producer of A Public Affair. Megan Burge has been the engineer. Mary Jo's on the phones. Sholly Pittman is the director of news and public affairs. Please stay tuned for Mitch Jezerich and Letters in Politics, followed by Journeys into Jazz with our host, EJCJ. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM Madison, listener-sponsored community radio. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by.